snake back once again, though a little later than hope. It's kind of cool because I got a few messages and texts telling me to hurry up uh, and to get the next one out, you know. It's, it's a little bit aggressive, but, but I'm okay with that. And I'd like to say that I was just playing hard to get, but unfortunately not. It, it's been a combo of real life, uh, the new Pro Evo, which I do seem to have like a, a heroin-like addiction to, and also the late James Agnew and the search for the wraith, which... Sounds like a mythical tale, but it's actually jumped in as the next podcast due to recent revelations, meaning that I've had to set Edward the Bruce loose and bump him down the pecking order, so to speak. The James Agnew stuff, though, it's it's a tale of mad coincidences and fortunate bumping into, and maybe and maybe it's a bit self indulgent, you know, being about my family and stuff. But I can confirm that we do now know who left the wreath and who left the crosses, and they are not one and the same people. Yeah, I know. Super exciting and I can visualise you all gobbing in anticipation but alas no, I have to be strong and wait and so do you. As it needs a bit more work but it will be out soon and in other news we broke a thousand listens in SoundCloud so that's pretty cool. I mean it's not exactly the kind of numbers that are going to get me a, a gold framed LP from Stock Aiken and Waterman like you know like of the 80s but it's way more than I thought we'd get at this stage so it's pretty cool. Even cooler though is that those numbers don't include iTunes downloads, but it may include the bots and do you know what? I ain't no bigot, so if the bots want to listen, I say let them listen. But anyway, it's probably about time we moved on here, so here it is. Episode 007 of the Irreverent History of Ulster, Northern Ireland Part 2. Who the feck were you, Brian Baru? Learn of the past, the answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Okay, I was uh, I was going to kind of call this episode Who the Feck is Brian Baru and what the feck he do to make the Viking shoe. And that's shoe with uh, S-H-O-O, not giant footwear in case you've got some weird image in your head, which I oddly know I have in mind. But that aside, it's a lengthy title that tries to sort of encapsulate the theme of this episode. It's asking why the Vikings stopped being so bloody Viking. And if I'm going to sum up the last episode, we spoke about how how they have a bit of a split personality. You know, the Vikings do. You know, one side is a bit aggressive and loves to kill and steal at axe point, whilst the other is more contemporary capitalist and likes to trade monks for cash. When, I mean, both were highly lucrative back in the 10th century to Ireland, to be fair. At the time, the Irish kings, of which there were about a bloody gazillion, had no unity nor loyalty to each other. And the Vikings exploited this, exploded their bickering by establishing towns that doubled as military strongholds and economic hubs, such places as Wexford, Waterford and Dublin. You know, they adopted like similar tactics to those that had, had served them so well in conquering like huge chunks of England. And yet, despite the division between the locals, the Norse invaders found it so much harder to settle on this island, especially in Ulster, because the natives just never give them a break. They were urged to fight back against the hairy fairy invaders. And just for balance, it's it's not as if it was all Vikings, you know, one love between themselves either. There was a constant Viking on Viking crime too. You know, Norse v Dane, satellite Viking versus homeland Viking. A real heady brood of issues, but like most being settled but just a sharp axe of the chops. Now, there are many out there that disagree and, and state that the Vikings were, were just a bit misunderstood, but then so was Charles Manson, you know, according to many of his followers. 
But we can take a story from the Norse saga, which describes the life of a guy called Sven Alaflisvarsen, a Viking settler on the Orkney Islands. I mean, basically, he sowed his seeds in spring, and then he went to Ireland for a bit of barbarism, then sowed different type of seed, you know, on what he termed as a spring trip, a gentle euphemism for murder holiday, like a precursor to the American spring break, you know, with the Vikings of the jocks and everyone else is just kind of collateral damage. Satisfied, he would return home to reap the harvest before jetting off again on an autumn trip. You know, so, so to summarise his life, it was pretty much six months he was a farmer, and the other six he was a bit of a leg with an axe who liked to kill people. And to support this, Makla, an historian, in his book Wars of the Gaul and the Gaul, which isn't the most catchy title, like describes the actions of the Danes. And I'm going to channel my best Dan Carlin emphatic and dramatic quoting system for this. Quote, they killed the kings and the chieftains, the heirs to the crown, and the royal princes of Erin. They killed the brave and the valiant and the stout knights, champions and soldiers, and young lords, and the greater part of the heroes and the warriors of the entire Gaul. And they brought them under tribute and servitude. They reduced them to bondage and slavery. Many were the beautiful women and comely maidens they carried into bondage over the broad green sea. End quote. Really just reduces them to slaves and whores. That's the image we have. Carried off the life of like merciless servitude, you know. But to stop this, Ireland needed a hero. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. And he's got to be fresh from the fight. It's time Brian Brew got his ass to the party. So grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So who the feck was Brian Brew, and how does he fit into this story? To give a lazy comparison, he was like the William Wallace character of Braveheart, fighting against like perceived oppression, you know, foreigners on his native lands, somehow uh, possessing the charisma and, and character to unite the clans and get them to take up his calling. As a child, he was sent to a monastery, you know, for education, which is a little odd as the Vikings practiced monk aside, and it would be like sending your kids to Baghdad now. But Brian, though, he was he was a tough little scamp. Ironically, he survived the raids, whereas his dad did not. He was killed by Vikings in his homeland. His brother, Man, became top dog in a very unstable kingdom, with numerous rivals giving him the glad eye. All the while, Brian was doing his own thing. You know, he became a bit of a guerrilla fighter, just like the Wolverines of Red Dawn, one of my top ten favourite movies, by the way. And he led ambushes and raids on the Viking merchants. It was... It was just a bit of annoying at first, but word started to spread and the young nobles began to flock to him, declaring their wish to rid the country of, of the invaders. I get a bit dubious about this, so I can't help but wonder if it's because life is a bit shit, you know, a bit dull. You know, at the time, there's, there's no PlayStation, no Netflix, there's nothing like that. Just work in the fields, then sitting about listening to the same tired old people tell the same tired old stories. It's like, you know, it's like your relatives coming over every single day and telling you about themselves every single day. And then you go off to bed and you're going head to toe with your 12 siblings. I mean, no thanks. Like, it also makes you wonder how all these people had so many kids when there's only one room in the house. You know, it's a bit creepy that, like, innit? I mean, for me personally, it was bad enough sharing bunk beds as a kid with my older brother. He was, he was about 13 or so, you know, when we got them. And he obviously declared his the top one. He used to play this weird game where 
he would like wait until he thought I was asleep and then he would start shaking the bed. I mean, it was really weird. And to this day, if I ask him about it, he gets really kind of embarrassed and paranoid. I think it's because I never let him know I was awake. Because if I did, he would think he'd won. But by ignoring him, it only lasted a minute or two before he'd get bored and stop. And I'd always hear him panting after and then soon snoring, you know, exhausted by his like pathetic attempt to annoy me. I mean, night after night, he would try, but I never let on. I'd just flick the bird at the top bunk and smirk at the victory that was mine. You know, just like it would be Brian's. Which is odd as he was up against the badass beast of the battlefield. You know, vicious and unrelenting. You know, the Vikings. But they were still human beings. And they certainly didn't get it always their own way against the Irish. Sure, they had better technology when they first arrived. But the Irish learnt lessons from those early days. And and, kind of caught up. Maybe even overtook them in tactics. And the Vikings favoured like this kind of, you know, shield wall, you know, it's a little bit like the, the Greek phalanx from the 300, you know, the Spartans all, all linked together. But this was really strong against a full frontal attack, but it left them vulnerable against more kind of manoeuvrable troops with longer weapons. And it would be their undoing in 968 at the Battle of Silgate. Brian, you know, showed his battle intelligence as he, he lured them into a forest and they panicked. They were unable to form their cohesive defensive unit and they were decimated. And any fleeing survivors were beheaded, which is nice. I mean, the city was sacked and the inhabitants were either enslaved or massacred, which is also kind of nice. A few years later, in 976, Mahan, Brian's brother, was tricked and killed by his rival Donovan, perhaps at uh, one of his folk concerts. The death is strange as he kind of walked unarmed into the trap. And in no way am I suggesting that Brian was involved, as there's no precedent of fratricide in history, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, shall we? But with man gone, you know, Brian was able to use that death as a kind of catalyst, as a kind of reason for murder, and swiftly wiped out any rivals in the area, so he could claim his much-desired place as the King of Monster, the King of Cashel. Now, if we go full DeLorean here and skip forward maybe about 30 odd years, Brian, um, by diplomacy first and murder, a very, very close second, had become High King of Ireland. He took the crown from his rival slash BFF, Maul Shacknell, and in doing so, he destroyed the High King monopoly held by the O'Neills for centuries, if not longer. It was around his time that his name changed from Brian Bereva uh, to Brian of the Cattle Tributes, or Baru as we know them now. And as we discussed in the last podcast, cows were one of the main currencies at the time. When I was a kid, we used the term heifer to describe a girl that, to be polite, you didn't like the look of. And a thousand years before, it's weird to me that it's what all the guys were chasing. Anyway, it's claimed that Brian, Ardry, High King, led Ireland into this kind of prolonged period of peace. Like peace between the clans, if you can call 15 odd years prolonged. Yet, it didn't include Ulster. So northern rascals, you know, those of the Ula, the Arigella, and the northern O'Neill especially, they had no chill until maybe 1010. And Baru returned year after year and gradually wore them down. He exerted pressure from his enlarged navy, a tactic that had been integral in his coming to power in the first place. He was just sailing about, hurling abuse to the natives, you know, a show of force to speak. Generally just peacocking about the island with like a statement of, here's what I have, what have you got kind of vibe. And eventually everyone wilted. You know, he was backed by the, the incredibly deep pockets of Limerick. And he was able to invest heavily in infrastructure such as roads and buildings. And he sought to pacify the religious factions by returning stolen relics to their rightful place. It's like hearts and minds, you know, in full effect. It's, it kind of culminated in his uh, visit to Armagh where he declared it the ecclesiastical centre of Ireland. 
you know, possibly just to appease Ulster, but in return, Arma did him a solid. They declared him Imperator Scudororum, and that's Scudororum, not Scrotum, which I'm sure he wouldn't be pleased with, but it means High Emperor of the Scots, who, if you remember from the uh, Bloody Nine podcast, were the Irish, as Ireland was called Greater Scotia back in the day, and Scotland was called Hibernia. Now, I'm not sure what most 69-year-olds do, but as High King, Brian Baru was able to, to bask in the glow of like a United Ireland for a whole uh, four years, if that. Now, I know there'll be people out there beating their chests and proclaiming, that are la terrestre chacked. And if you can tell me what that means, I'd be well impressed. But in a sense, it maybe presents a, like a different narrative to the struggle of some for a United Ireland itself. As apart from those four years, it's... It's never been integrated as a single independent kingdom. I mean, the notorious Conor McGregor made a great point when he was talking about the Irish and he said, when one of us goes to war, we all go to war. And that's kind of true, but maybe not in the way he meant it. He was, I assume, meaning that the nation was behind him. But it's more true when it's put in the context of Irish history. It has always been pretty much at war internally. A nation never at peace. Even now, to an extent, although... The fight is obviously more vocal and physical, but can you guess who one of the protagonists is? Yeah, it's only a feckin' O'Neill, isn't it? Michelle O'Neill and her big rival Arlene Foster. You know, the top two dogs of Ulster politics. And despite their public spats, I have a theory. A theory that they're actually in cahoots, as they both get paid thousands and don't even have to turn up for work. I mean, is that a dream job or what? True to form, trouble restarted in 1013, when... Uh, the King of Leinster, a guy called Maul Marta, who it has to be said, seems like a total ball bag, rose up against Brian uh, with his big mate Cedric, who was his nephew. And we'll get on to the mum that links the two later. She's a real piece of work and maybe even makes Arlene and Michelle seem pleasant. Despite his age, though, you know, they were still fighting Brian. And from all over Ireland, the kind of bored masses spoiled him for a fight after nearly a thousand days of sabbatical from violence flocked to his banner. Shoulder to shoulder, they answered Ireland's call. The rebellion was quelled quite quickly. You know, it was pretty useless and Dublin was surrounded, but the siege was lifted before they could get across the barricades and there was no Kevin and Celia in sight. Manpower was the issue, so time became key. You know, Citric used that time to try and gather a huge force. Brian, for his part, got Maul Shocknell to help. I've deliberately marginalised this guy until this point as his key player and there was like a huge rivalry between him and Baru, like a medieval kind of like Liam and Noel Gallagher so good together even if they fight but apart you know just a bit shit Mulshagnall was king of the Southern O'Neill former high king of Ireland and a man with a name that like unfortunately makes me think of a Jewish supermarket but who was he? and why did he come to the aid of Brian Baru, the current high king of Ireland? Now, Maul Shagnall MacDonald, to give him his full handle, emerged from the decades of O'Neill infighting to take his place as High King in 980. And within, like, weeks, he was thrust into his first conflict. It was the Battle of Tara, the very heartland of the southern O'Neills in Meath, and very close to the sacred place where the High Kings of Ireland slash the O'Neill dynasty had been crowned for millennia. The antagonists were the Norse Gauls of Dublin, led by Olaf Kfarvan. He sensed weakness in Maul. He was so very wrong. The Vikings were smashed and it was a devastating blow. 
as it led to the Irish Gauls regaining control over the kingdom of Dublin, the Olaf's reign of power was over and he opted to leave his wife and go to the island of Iona for a life of solitude. I mean, how bad does your wife have to be for that to be your best option? But it worked in Maul's favour though, as he handpicked a new leader for Dublin, Queen Aaron, his half-brother, which gave him not only prestige, already boosted by the stunning victory of Tara, but it also swelled his coffers, as Dublin was cash-rich. A year later, Olaf was reported as dead, and Maul wasted no time for swooping in on his widow, the Princess of Leinster, and reportedly a bit of a crazy mare, the Lady Gormla. She was the mother of Citric, who we mentioned earlier, and the brother of the King of Leinster, and Maul Morda, who's another Maul, but he sounds more like a shopping centre from the Lord of the Rings, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't really have a major role as such, but he's just a complete troublemaker. And not the, oh, look, he drinks and he smokes and he rides a motorbike troublemaker. More the let's start a war and kill everyone because I'm bored kind of troublemaker, you know? But let's take a bit of context in this. It's 981. Brian Brew of the unfashionable and lowly Dalcash dynasty is taking control of Monster. You know, did he kill his brother? Who knows? He wants domination of Ireland. He daydreams of prancing around like his throne room, you know, with a high king crown resting atop of his loaf. And in his mind, nothing's going to stop him achieving that. Not even the current incumbent, Maul Shagnall. So he hatched a plan and attacked Connacht in league with the Waterford Vikings. This was seen by Maul as the direct challenge that it was, you know. And he therefore minced right into Dalcast Heartland and chopped down Brian's favourite tree, the great oak of Magadair. Now, I know what you're thinking. What a complete bastard. I mean, he's taking things far too far there, and I totally agree. I mean, the golden rule is you don't touch another man's wood. Certainly not without asking first. And to make matters worse, there are unconfirmed reports that Brian's wife's bush was ravaged too. Now, by these heinous acts, Maul had made made a statement himself, a medieval version of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And Brian was only too willing to show how hard he could be. This led to around 15 years of back and forth between the two provincial superpowers. I mean, it was like a violent game of catchy kissing. One would attack and do some damage and then retreat before the other would retaliate. Yet while resources were stretched, you know, warriors killed, and no doubt the peasants uprooted, but who cares about them? They, the two warlords just chased each other about the provinces and no one was able to land a decisive blow. Now, there were other players in this Game of Thrones, though. Shameless theft right there, I know. In 989, Glunary was murdered in shady circumstances. Remember, he was Maul's half-brother, an ally. So, to lose him was nothing short of disastrous. Especially as Maul was balls deep in monster blood at the time and marauding through the province when the news reached him. He had to abandon that fight and head straight to Dublin. And upon his arrival, you know, at the supposedly friendly city, the gates were locked. He laid siege, as you do. And with the Vikings somehow unprepared for this, he just waited them out. And it took about 20 days. Then he marched in, knocked a few skulls together and levied on them a tax of gold to be delivered in his house at Christmas Eve until eternity. I mean, how awesome is that? I remember how excited I was to get Skyletrix and he's bloody getting bars of gold. Now, the kingship was passed to an Irish Viking called Ivor, a descendant from the powerful family of Ivor the Boneless, which makes me snigger uh, to think his name is due to impotence, but probably safe to assume that it's not. Anyway, he was a bit of a twat and didn't pay his taxes to Maul. So Maul, Jesus, raging, had to trudge back to Dublin again to dish out a bit more punishment. Once he banished Ivor, he liberated lots more gold because he kind of liked gold. And he also laid his hands on Thor's ring and Charles's sword, which I swear is unintentional innuendo. They were in fact important relics, part of like the, the very identity of Dublin. And he took them to show that he was king. In many ways, it was just like when he'd had a go at Brian's wood. Okay, yes, that one was intentional, 
apologies. Now, Ivor was succeeded by Cedric Silkbeard as uh, King of Dublin. He was Maul's stepson, but very much in league with his uncle Maul Morda, the aforementioned troublemaker, or uh, shitster, to use a colloquialism. At this point, we have to remember that Brian is still absolutely focused on becoming High King, and Maul has all these distractions with Dublin that do not help him. Brian had been constantly sailing his boats up the Shannon and wreaking havoc in Maul's backyard. The Northern O'Neills refused to aid their southern brethren, and Brian was able to chip away at Maul's ability to rule, so much so that in 997 a party was called a Clonfer. Here, a deal was thrashed out, whereby Ireland was divided between the two warlords. Maul got Leith Coon, or Con's half, comprising Ulster, Connaught and Meath. Brian got Leith Moga, or Moore's half, which was Munster, Osrey and Leinster. It originally came from the Battle of Magnea in 123 AD. King Con, sorry, was defeated by Owen Moore and was forced to divide Ireland into the two halves. That this same deal was struck many years later shows the incredible weakness of Maul's position as within the terms he had agreed to give away the incredible riches of Dublin and presumably Santa was no longer going to bring him a sack of gold. But before we get all Neville Chamberlain and declare peace in our time, it has to be noted that these guys are only as loyal as their options, to quote Quest Rock. In 999, Leinster and Dublin revolted against Brian, but the combined force of Cedric and his pesky uncle Mel Morda was demolished by Brian Baru. I mean, an easy victory in his first outing as uh, King of Half of Ireland, which is a catchy title on it. Watching from afar would be Mal Shognall, wary and fully aware that... With the southern half of Ireland subdued, it would not be long before Baru would be cast and his glances north. Maul, he wasn't blind and he certainly wasn't stupid and he knew that Brian would attack up the Shannon. I mean, it was the guy's M.O. look. He beseeched his northern O'Neill brethren for assistance, aware that they had a vast navy that could compete. But they said no. The unease between the two O'Neill clans that had been festering for years burst like some kind of pussy boil and popped right in Maul's bag. They knew that his tenure as High King was incredibly precarious and they still didn't sail the aside. Maul had one last throw of the dice. He formed a giant barricade across the Shannon at it alone. However, I mean, he may as well not have bothered because as basically as soon as Brian's fleet were in sight, he prostrated himself on the floor and rescinded his High Kingship. He did, however, get to keep his lands, as was the custom back then, and Brian got the title he had dreamed of since the Vikings had made him an orphan many years ago. So there you have it, a united Ireland. Oh, the Gildhawk would cry with joy. But alas, there was still a problem, and it will come as little surprise to anyone that it was the nine bloody counties of Ulster. Ulla, Argella, and the Northern O'Neill just showed no quit. They banded together to form like a kind of uneasy alliance that repelled Brian's initial forays into the province. I mean, it only lasted a few years. The hatred towards Brian was kind of eased by him spending loads of money in Ulster. And certainly as the aforementioned patronisation of Armagh, and it maybe indicates that he had more about him than just, just being a warlord. And so it was, after attacking Ulster, year after year, that he finally broke the resistance. In 1011, defeating the last bastion of Northern Power, the Canal Connell of Donegal. He was helping this by Flabbertuck of the Canal Owen O'Neill's and Maul Shacknell of all people, showing just how divided a power the former leading family of Ireland had become. Brian must have rode back towards Munster with a giant head. After a mere five decades or so of constant warmongering, he had quashed every fighting force in Ireland. He was supreme leader. There was no one left to fight. He was maybe thinking about, you know, taking some downtime, excited about 
getting a new hobby. He could probably even get round to finally papering the spare room that his wife had been nagging about for years. Well, that was at least until he checked his emails upon arriving back in the domain of Thalmond and Monster, or his past of Kinkora as it was called, which is a name that has horrific connotations for Monster's recent past, so I probably won't use it. It is there where news would have reached them that Flabbertuck was kicking off again in the north, a direct slap in the face of Brian. Just a bit worrying for old Moss, his lands were jammed right between the two of them. Then again, within a few weeks, the news that the snake and his citric silkbeard and his upstart uncle rose again, attacking Moll Shocknell. I mean, does anyone else not wonder why, what they are still doing about? I mean, whatever happened to execution? I mean, why are they alive? I don't know, they just keep going sent back to Dublin and then fighting again. But Brian, I mean, he must have felt the same frustration as he had to set aside his crochet and told his butler to repair his battle gear. You know, within a year though, he'd pushed them right back to Dublin. But he didn't have the manpower to finish the attack. He would have to wait until the following year, allowing him time to rebuild his army. In this he was not alone. The Dublin Vikings were also recruiting, and the two forces would soon meet just outside of Dublin, in the bloodiest engagement ever seen on Irish soil, the Battle of Clontarf. So you may be thinking, hang on a second here, uh, this was supposed to be about the Vikings, and all we're hearing about is two Irish warmongers kicking off at each other, and you know what, you're right. But it's leading up to what many believe is the key reason behind the death of the Norsemen in Ireland, the aforementioned Battle of Clontarf. But before we jump into that, we just need to make a slight sidestep. There was a bit of a reaction to the chat in the last podcast uh, about women Vikings, or even just women in the era, and while it's undoubtedly a really boring time for the vast majority of them. There are a few outliers. One is Gormla, the lady of the Three Leaps, and a mega bitch according to the stories of the time. The Three Leaps refer to her three marriages. Uh, a leap at Dublin, a leap at Tara, and a leap at Cashel. According to an old monk's poem that is. She was, she was first married to the King of Dublin, old Olaf of the Shoes, but he was way older than her and she wore him out so he headed to Dianiona as we discussed earlier, but not before he had sired Cedric to be fair. We also mentioned how she married Maul, which is the Tara Leap, but moved on to Brian in 999 when he was weirdly putting her son's latest rebellion down. I mean, there's nothing like a siege in your city to get the lines down, is there, really? It also transpires though that Cedric's wife is Brian's daughter, Slona. So they really are keeping it in the family. And it maybe says more about me, but uh, if I was Maul and Cedric was attacking me, I'd be giving it the whole, I've had your mum, Panther. I mean, probably not if it was Brian, though, as that leaves him open to daughter chat, and no dad needs to hear about that, like, do they? Now, there's a book called The Koga Gala Regola, which is the war of the Irish with the Vikings, and it says that Gormla also had a leap of Brian, before 1014, and she is seen as one of the major catalysts for inciting her son Cedric, not that he need much cajoling, and her brother Male Morda, ditto, to rebel against their her former husbands. I mean, she sounds delightful, doesn't she? Another delight is a Viking princess called Rusla, and her sister Stikla. Rusla, whose nickname uh, was the Red Maiden, apparently sailed the seas, robbing and killing any Danes she could as a way to avenge her brother, who had his throne stolen by a Danish king called Osmond. Her brother, like ever grateful for his sister's selfless acts, captured her and had her killed as the king who had taken his title promised to foster him. So he just abandoned her. And like you would think, okay, 
maybe he killed her nicely, poison, you know, open her veins in a bath. No. Just for the crack, he had her tied beneath his boat while his crew battered her to death with their oars. And this was after she'd seen both of her sons die at the Battle of Clontarf, which, since we mention it, may as well head back that way. You may be thinking, why is a bloodthirsty, crazy-ass, pirate Viking lady fighting at Clontarf anyway? And it's all to do with Cedric. You know, Cedric the slippery snake had somehow survived so many escapades and scandals. And he knew that this may be the big one. So he took, uh, just jumped aboard a schooner and flew off to the kingdoms of Orkney and Man and promised kingship of Dublin to both upon his death. Now, that's a bit of a cheeky move. You know, hedging his bets, giving it to both, but he probably had no intention of passing his title to either, but that was only going to be a problem if he survived. Or if they survived. You see, Dublin was uber wealthy at the time, and neither of those kingdoms are going to pass up their chance to get the mitts in those riches. So they sent huge fleets to support Cedric. They landed at Clontarf, but actually fought a few miles away from it. The date was Good Friday, 23rd April 1014. Just over a millennium ago. You know, a thousand years. Maybe around 30 generations. And if you work that out, that's like a billion ancestors. All it is is two to the power of 30. And that's an impossible number for back then. And so we're just nowhere near that amount of people in Ireland. So logically, it actually just shows how closely related and in a sense incestuous we all are. So that's nice, isn't it? It's a nice thought. Moving on to the battle numbers. There were between five to 10,000 men ready for a ruckus that day. Yet, in a retro type twist, there was actually a bit of one-on-one combat to start the day off. Two champions having a scrap to decide if there was actually any need for a war. But I mean, you'd be a bit pissed off if you'd sealed the whole way, ready for battle, your hero got killed and you had to give up and go home. But fear not, both died, quote, with the sword of each through the heart of the other and the hair of each in the clenched hand of the other, end quote. And it sounds legit, doesn't it? Now, if you're wanting the blow-by-blow account of the battle, you are going to be sort of disappointed, as I'm just going to skirt most of the details, as they're relatively inconsequential. Okay, here goes the Irish one. The Vikings got whooped, despite their huge force arriving with great fanfare. I mean, it was almost like they had their own, like, walkout music, and it was like a UFC main event, but then, just like Aldo, an Irishman put them to sleep. It was almost as if the Vikings were on some sort of stag do and got all sorted out for ease and whiz the night before, because they were rubbish, literally and figuratively wiped out. But Ireland lost too. But how? I hear you ask. Sort of, well, Bran was killed. You know, there's a spoiler for you. And who do you blame? Well, I'm looking directly at Maul Shacknell for that. Dun, dun, dun. Now, Brian was old as shit, so he didn't actually go to the battlefield. He stayed back and let his son, Murka, take control. Now, Maul apparently arrived late at the battle, and Murka gave him the role of sweeping up the retreating Vikings and covering the wood which contained Brian's tent. Now, somehow, a Viking hero, called Bro here, managed to get through Maul and his security guard, and he just so happened to stumble upon Brian's little two-man tent. Where obviously Brian made a heroic last stand, but was overcome by the sheer numbers and viciously slain by the Viking warrior. Now, I couldn't find anybody else with the same opinion as me, which is normal as I'm contrarian as fuck by nature, but I was still a little shocked by that. There is no mention that I could find that Maul betrayed Brian, none at all in any of the literature that I was reading. To me, it's weird because all the evidence points to it. Firstly, Maul was a proud man, and O'Neill of premier stock and he had been effectively asset stripped by Brian who had taken his lands his prestige 
his wealth, even his wife, but most of all, he had destroyed the O'Neill monopoly. How could Maul not be angry and vengeful for, like, the desecration of his heritage? But just because he was angry didn't mean he was stupid or hasty. He showed his savvy by, by bending the knee to Brian, and no matter how much it hurt, he handed over the title of Ardry in order to avoid bloodshed and possible annihilation. At the Battle of Clonturf, he may have allowed Brohair through to kill the High King. Like, Brian's son, Murka, had been killed in the main battle as well. And his grandson joined the band that chased after Brian's assassin. And can you guess what happened to him? Yeah, he died too. What a coincidence. And therefore, that was the end of Brian's immediate legacy. And do you know who took over as High King? Of course you do. I'm not even going to insult you by confirming that you're right. I mean, as Jeff Lebowski stated, it's like what Lenin said. You look for the person who will benefit. This time it wasn't Brian's sacred tree, but his family tree that was devastated. His lands were left in absolute turmoil, leading to years and years of civil war and a near destruction of the O'Brien name. It would rise again many years later, and not just as a sandwich shop, but by then it would be too late, and the high kingship would never be the same again, never have the same kudos. Mal Shecknell, however, died, maybe a decade later, but with a great old smile on his back as he had bested his old mugger. And one bag is hereditary title. Unlands. So, let's discuss the end of the Vikings. The Kogagala Regola, the book by which we learn uh, most of the details of Brian's rule, suggests he was the scourge of the Vikings, that he cleansed the land of their evil ways, and that it was the Battle of, of Clontarf that saw them meet their grisly end. Yet, that doesn't really ring true. Yet, it saw the Isles of Orkney and Man never return to their heights of power, so it had an effect there, but in regards to Ireland, was it that emphatic? To many, the Viking power, well, it was already on the wane. I mean, and this is evidenced by the fact that Cedric had to even leave to recruit extra men in the first place. Many people actually say it's the Battle of Tara where the future of the Vikings was decided. At that time, they were trying to make forays inland, you know, trying to, you know, create somewhere to live. But they were absolutely demolished. And their recovery was heavily curtailed by the reparations that Maul Shacknell levied upon them. Okay, they must have failed their tax, but they were more raids and invasions. If we carry this forward and look at Clontarf, you see that's actually more of a civil war rather than the as-build war between the Vikings and the Irish. It's Leinster, the Dublin Danes, and many parts of Ulster, would you believe, versus the rest. Also, it's not as if after the battle all the Vikings just upped and left. I mean... Many were natives by that stage, mixed into the bloodline, second, third, maybe even fourth generation Norse Irish. They maybe just decided to kill their jets and relax with the raping and pillaging, which we can all agree is a most welcome change of attitude. With this information though, it does call into question Brian's reputation as the greatest king of Ireland, especially when you realise that the Cougagala Regola, the book that heavily glorifies him, was actually commissioned by his great-grandson, Murda O'Brien who's about as impartial as the vegans are to beef jerky. Now, the O'Briens, as his descendants were happy to call themselves, seem to have tried to out O'Neill the O'Neills and create their own work of awesome propaganda. And to be fair, they did really well. They positioned him as a Christian king, dying with the symbol of the Lord in his arms, you know, the crucifix. Some even compared him to Jesus, you know, the Lord above, a Christian bulwark against the heathens, all because he died in Good Friday. Now, we don't actually know that for sure, as it's not mentioned in the contemporary reports. However, unlike the story of Jesus, he didn't rise again. Though if he had of, I wonder what he would have thought of the execution of his murderer, Brodier. They disemboweled him, tied his intestines to a tree, 
and walked them around it as they uncoiled. I mean, what a way to go. I mean, I mean, who comes up with that? Is there like a big tombola and everyone, you know, puts a torture in to see which one's picked out? It's crazy stuff. But as for Brian's legacy, it kind of all boils down to what you define as a great king. Brian saw war for almost every single one of his adult years. I mean, is that a proper king? Should they not be a bit more regal and respected? A bit more ruling for the people rather than just killing them all? Admittedly in that age, you know, if you threw a stone in any direction, you'd find a band of angry men spoiling for a fight. So maybe I'm being a bit harsh. Maybe he is the greatest. But I'd also, I'd also put Maul's name forward. As he's the only ever two-time high king in history. But then again, are you really going to lose sleep over the argument? <laughs> Me neither. So, Brian was dead. His corpse was Will Armagh for burial, and his bones apparently still lie in the foundations of the northern wall of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Ironic, in a sense, that the ancient enemy of the province of Ulster, uh, the first in centuries to be a high king outside of Clan O'Neill, would end up buried beneath its soil. There's also supposedly a pub built in the site where he died, imaginably titled the Brian Baru. I mean, if that's not respect, what is? It has its own range of like eponymous whiskey. Not that they're cashing in on his name or anything, but to be fair, there's lots of that about. And the most popular is probably being the harp, which is the national symbol of Ireland now. It's on passports and president seals and of course Guinness and the imaginatively titled harp lager. Just to show that it's not the O'Neill's, like a wee bit of a lie. The Brian Baru harp that sits in Trinity College, the proclaimed instrument of the King of Ireland, actually dates from about four or five hundred years after his death. But, you know, it's a cool story, isn't it? So why let the truth destroy the myth? Everyone wants to go down there and have a look at the wee harp that Brian Brew plucked away on, don't they? Now, talking about truth, while hoking about online, I found that there's actually a standing council of Irish chiefs and chieftains. You know, a group who kind of like to glorify the past, possibly in the same way as the Loch Ness Monster does for Scotland. They are the direct descendants who can prove they are the rightful title holder of the Irish clan's powers, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, how cool? Well, they had amongst their ranks one Terence McCarthy Moore, the Prince of Desmond, as he was called. And he claimed that he was from the McCarthy's a monster. He sold titles under the guise of an organisation called the Nivena, and at all expenses paid trips to, to speak at numerous fat cat functions in America. Heritage tourism, I suppose it could be called. He is said to have made over one million pounds from his ventures when in uh, 99 he was exposed as a complete fraud. He literally just made it all up. And oddly, I have a begrudging respect for that purely because he's such a ballsy move, like, isn't it? But this was supposed to be about the Vikings. So what is their legacy? Well, aside from the names Ireland, Monster, Leinster and Ulster all being of Scandinavian origin, they also brought, amongst other things, it's like cities, money and a badass military. Then there's Dublin itself. It wasn't really anything until they took over it. They even named it. It means Dark Pool. The Irish have their own name for it, of course. Balaya a Clea, the town of the huddled Ford. And you can see that in all the license plates from down there. But the name Dublin prevails. And just look at it now. What a massive city, you know, whether you love it or hate it, you know. Also, one of their big legacies is the Gengars, or Gingers to be more PC. If you are one, or even if you just have a little, like I have, that comes through in your beard, even if it's kind of like rapidly being replaced by grey, thank the Lord, or 
Allah or Ra, and that's the Egyptian god Ra, not the Ra, because that'd be a different thing altogether, especially in this podcast. But anyway, if you have ginger, chances are you're a Viking stock. Now, it's most likely forced Viking stock if you get my drift, but Viking stock nonetheless. Now, sadly, they never really regained anything like the power they once had. You know, Balaclantarf was it. But soon after, it didn't matter anyway. In 1066, something big happened across the water. Battles at Stamford Bridge and Hastings, as two of the Viking armies attacked Britain, one under the Norwegian King Harald Hardrada and one under William the Conqueror. If you're thinking, Nick, mm, uh, sorry to bother you, but you said two Viking armies there and I only count one, my friend. The other was French. Well, you can stop your internal monologue there and I'll tell you why. We spoke of the TV show The Vikings in the last podcast, and there are a few spoilers here, but nothing major. There's a character in it called Rollo, Ragnar Baggy Breaches his brother. Against Ragnar's wishes, he settled in France and began a dynasty, one that would see his people settle in northern France, merging their Viking habits with the French, kind of je ne sais quoi, and forging a new culture. They were the new Norsemen of France, and they settled in Normandy, or Normandy for short, and a direct descendant is William the Conqueror. So yeah, while you're correct that it was a French army, it had Viking blood pulsing through its veins. Why mention these battles? Well, they would have grave consequences for Ireland, as the Normans won. And in 1176, a Norman descendant, Jean de Courcy, would invade from England, and life would never be the same again. But let's go wider picture here. What's left of the Vikings now? Stories, museums, reenactments, but what are the culture? Do any civilizations still practice it, still care for it, endorse it? Well, one of the big claims that Scandinavians and stuff would make is that they beat Christopher Columbus to discover an America. And I totally agree. How Leif Erikson got there around about the same time as the Battle of Clontarf. But do you know what? He wasn't the first. Unfortunately, he was second. Second to a monk called St. Brendan. Guy who packed his rotten eggs and sailed across the Atlantic around the start of the 6th century, thinking he was going for the Garden of Eden. He returned to Ireland annoyed at merely finding what would become the US of A. Now, it takes a strong man to row an ocean. And it just so happens that the Viking blood runs in the very fabric of the sport of strong man. Seamless connection or what, eh? They have so many winners over the years. Magnus Magnuson, Magnus Samuelson, Sven Carlson, my personal favourite, Jean Paul Sigmarsson, and the newest and the most public is now Halford Bjornsson. Goes by the name of Thor, probably more popular as the mountain in the Game of Thrones. But do you know who's better athletes than them? The daughters of Iceland, the crossfitters, Sarah, Annie, Thurgi, Katrine, the two-time champ. They are badass as you get. And because of them, we're going to mention the Icelandic football team Slow Club. 10,000 fans, a 30th of their population coming together to celebrate the success at Euro 2016, which is a, a football tournament for the European nations. It's, it's like a grueling qualification section where, may I add, Northern Ireland won their group, the smallest country ever to do so, and even made it into the last 16. Ireland also did well, only getting beaten in penalties, and both Ireland's have qualified for the playoffs for their World Cup now, with Iceland actually becoming the smallest country ever to qualify for it just a few days ago. Though, if you look at it, it's strange because we channeled our Viking spirit as we had a few gingers in the pitch. Turns out Ireland had some too, yet Iceland, all blondes. Do you know what they did have? The slow clap. And here it is. So turn it up, because it's awesome. Laters. <laughs> 